tell you that as a result of your many, many letters, Neil Lavang made a recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky. It has just been released, so we're going to ask Neil to play his recording arrangement. get rid of me but no here we are at 9 47 p.m on the east coast on a saturday night it's the last saturday in january it's the last hours of january actually and then we jump into the short stumpy month of february and um, and I think I can't wait to do tonight's show because it's going to be a little bit less of a chronological thing. That's ironic, speaking of uh, time travel. But with Andrew Bishago coming back to the show, we get to do now a follow-up of everything that we were talking about in September, back on September 10th when he was here last. And I want to uh, I want to do some some review with you first. First, I got to welcome back because she was there the night of. What is going on, cousin Sherry? Not much. I'm I'm, pre- I'm very excited about tonight. I'm I'm excited too. Now you want to get into let, let's just get into this a little bit. Here's here are some of the biggest things. I have some some notes here. So just so you know, Andrew Bashago is the American lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, past presidential candidate. He doesn't know if he wants to run again. Best mm. known for serving as one of the first if not the first, U.S. chrononauts in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and Project Mars during the advent of interdimensional travel. Now, Jerry, here are some of the notes, the, the biggest things that I, take, I took away and we had compiled after uh, September because we know this would happen. 
U.S. government time travel experiments can trace their origin to the UFO flight over Washington, D.C. in 1952. The craft were observed uh, disappearing, then reappearing at different points in the sky, which inspired the government to revisit Nikola Tesla's research into teleportation. Bashago's father was the man responsible for repeating the teleportation experiments, pretty much the, uh, the revival of the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah. When a technician stumbled into the energy field created by a reconstructed energetic array, and he was teleported to Africa. Now, everybody thought that this man had been disintegrated, if you remember that. Yeah. But when he returned, it was clear that the, the device had worked. It just, they didn't know how it worked. Almost like that movie, The Prestige. Yeah, the, yeah. You know? Did it take him a while to come back? A couple I, years I, or something? No, I don't think it was years, but I think he was talking in, in terms of months. Okay. So, uh, I guess. So, anyway, in 1968, when Bashago was only six years old, his father took him to a government lab in New Jersey, and they both used a device to teleport to New Mexico in approximately five seconds. The two proceeded to drive to Los Alamos National Labs to meet with Dr. Harold Agnew, a physicist who had worked on the Manhattan Project and who was now leading the government's research into time travel. The Tesla teleportation device was the starting point to begin understanding time travel, and he had been a uh, part of the third group of test subjects, and by that time, the engineers knew how to actually teleport people to certain points in space-time, and it wasn't so chaotic. Uh, there's so much more, though. Obviously, you know. Yes. Wait, hold on. What happened? The cat? No, the, uh, my thing fell. Oh. My light. Uh, yes, so you were saying. Yes. Well, it, it, quite a resume, quite a story. Absolutely. And from there, we just went into the missions. Yeah. We know, obviously, there is him being there for not only the Gettysburg Address, but being in Ford's Theater multiple times yep. to see... Seeing himself there. Yes. Yeah. Now, th and this is what has caused a lot of confusion, uh, Sherry. What's caused a lot of confusion for people, and I want him to talk about uh, right off the bat, is to actually lay out and distinguish between chronovising, the chronovisor technology. Is this something that you just, you're peering into a television screen mm -hmm. or you're actually there? And what's the difference? I mean, it just... It's, I think it's completely different. Right. We're talking about in a, going in a portal and actually going somewhere and being able to interact with people because he clearly did. He did that at the Ford Theater. When he was going in, he had to talk to people. Yes. So, and a chronovisor is just looking into the past the other thing i wanted to, i want to ask him about is the effect i think i might have done it but i don't remember the whole mandela effect how it how it ties into this because when he talked about going back to uh ford's theater multiple times he said that whereas the main event of the evening never changed lincoln always died little tiny things were different like the yeah. the person ripping tickets that night at the box office was different yeah. or where he ended up I, I th things like that which seems like it's mandela related right <laughs> I, I it seems it seems crazy it seems like there's ha there has to be a lot of people messing with time in order for something like that to happen yeah you know, I, I get so confused. <laughs> I'm just ready for a nice little journey right yeah. now. But in 1940, then we got into the chronovising. Mm. And I brought up the Vatican. I said, you know, I've always read that the Vatican had this chronovisor technology there in the mid-20th century. It's kept in the archives and all that. And he said he confirmed that, yes, two Catholic priests working at the University of Milan, Italy, 
were trying to discover why Gregorian chants had certain healing properties. They designed a specialized microphone through which uh, was heard the childhood nickname of one of the priests confirming a window into the past had been opened. The priests claimed that they went on to use the technology to capture images of the crucifixion. Um, now, Andrew, mm -hmm. he told me, but he didn't tell me all the details, that he has things to say about not only the crucifixion, but the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. I'd love to hear that. And especially how I want to know if that has anything that ties into the the, the, the immortal nature of the soul, what he, what he can tell us about that. Um, but the chronovising here, that right there, looking in these notes, that's something in itself. Because when he talked about the, studying Gregorian chants as to why the, the, there's healing properties there, obviously the last couple of weeks on, quite frankly, we've been doing a lot yeah. about frequency. In fact, Anthony's sitting over here. Anthony, and he's going to be listening to the conversation before he jumps in, I guess. But Anthony knows Toby Wright, right, Ant? Who's Toby Wright? Yeah. Toby Wright was, he was the... Um, the guest I had on a couple of Fridays ago, who was a big time music producer. Oh yeah. Who okay. also does the frequency and, and yeah. I'm, you know, so and we were from there, it's just been one, uh, one res resurfacing of that conversation after another. Frequencies, not only for healing, but for other things. Like, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of really good theories about how somatics yeah. and, and resonant sound could have been the key for the ancient Egyptians of building the pyramids. Yeah, I, I believe it. So I, I want to get in on that right there because I always wondered what ancient, what ancient cultures that may not have had the technology we do, but all, but had a, more of a spiritual understanding of our existence here, how they may have been able to time travel without a stargate. Yeah, that would. I believe that. You know, I believe it. There's something there, Sherry. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I just recently got a, a CD. Uh, it's called True Solfeggio. Do you know what that word is? No. Sol Solfeggio. You gotta look it up. Kind of like arpeggio, but it's um it's a it's an album of guitar music, but it's all tuned to uh, different things. One one song is for anxiety. One song is for you know uh, going to sleep. It's uh, that's the name of the album, True Solfeggio, and I got it. I think on Amazon. Well, you know, I, I heard a guy on a podcast. It was really good. I don't have I don't have that, but Toby, I, I just got myself a year's worth of access to Toby Wright stuff. I want to do that. So I'm going. I would want to. I've try. heard some of it before. Yeah, I want to try. I, I mean, he said that the Bluetooth speaker that I have would work perfectly. You, but you got to put it really low. Very low. Because I, I listened to some of I was like, well, yeah, this has to be low because it sounds like I'm living inside of well, a microwave. I yeah, I, did, I didn't know yet. I, I, at first when I heard it, I was like, I was putting it pretty loud. And I'm like, this is not making me calm. <laughs> you know, It's like you're in an MRI machine. Yeah. But, that, but that's why, you know, it has to be just right there at the bottom. And I can't wait. I can't wait to try it. I Apparently can't. Apple just came out with some of the best noise canceling uh, ear pods I'm going to be looking into getting those. I am on a search for ear pods that don't fall out of my ears and do some noise canceling. I love noise canceling. Hmm. I used to have hearing aids like that. So noise canceling, you want to put ear pods for when you sleep? For all the time. I need it all the time. The ringing and the, and the loss of... It's an imbalance. I have loss of hearing in one ear. So, so is, do I. Is that because of... Vaccine. Yeah, oh, you think so? Flu vaccine 10 years, uh, more than 10 years ago. And you, you know that that's when it happened. Positive, yeah. 
Damn. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that. that. How bad is your tinnitus? It's bad. It's bad. I mean, uh, I've been dealing with it for so long, though. It doesn't bother me anymore. But every once in a while, it gets super clicky. or I get a lot of weird noises. Not just... I wish it was just ringing. But... Uh, so sometimes when I'm when I'm anxious or I'm just I need to get stuff done, it kind of gets in the way. It gets me a little frustrated. So. I listen to different types of noise at night sometimes. Well, last year it was pretty bad. Before I got my my ear surgery, I had a cholestatoma in my right ear, which is it's a growth that grows underneath your eardrum. Oh. So I got that removed. But before I did, the tinnitus was worse, and I would listen to different types of noise. You had white noise. Brown noise, violet noise, pink noise. Uh, violet and pink noise seem to be the the the, um, the two types that that mimicked my tinnitus the most. Really? You know, you find something that kind of sounds close to the tone, and then you put it in. You, you know, it's like it's like therapy, so that like it trains your brain to uh, to like uh, basically, uh, it's like almost like distracts your brain. It puts it. It yeah. gets your. It gets your tinnitus in the mix of that. So, and then when you turn it off, it's like you. I don't know. It does something to your brain where you're not thinking about it as much because that's what it is. It's like it, it's not an audible thing. It's your yeah. brain. You, know? you just have to find a way to live. The best way to live with it is that's the solution. Have you have you um, have you had any outer body experiences since doing frequency work at night? Because you know that was one of the things that Bashago said. That aside from remote viewing and uh, and we know the gateway process and all that stuff, sound was a big part of it. But he actually, if you remember, he went through eight different modalities of time travel that he did and things like that and remote viewing. And one of the things he said it wasn't had to do with sound, but he said he was spun. He oh yeah, yeah, the centrifuge, yeah. S- spun until he left his body. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is just I would not want. Th- I'd throw up. I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> well, anyway, let's call. I, it him. definitely happens though. You you leave your body. My uh, Trevor's had experiences where he had the same type of thing happen. The spinning. Yeah. After you know, feeling he's like, Mom, I feel like I'm behind myself. When he was young, after going on some rides. Oh. Like you. It's kind of a weird way to describe it, but I feel like that's what he was the, going through. The inner, the, the inner workings just change after a few years. I used to love the spinning rides. I don't want anything Oof. to do with them now. No. All right. Let's, you know what? Let's just jump right into it. Remember, this is going to be just leave all of your shit at the door and have a good time tonight, my friends. All right. Let's call Andrew Bashago. Hello, Mr. Bashago. It's Frank. How you doing? Hi, Frank. It's great Good. to have you back on the show again. I hope everything is well with you over there on the West Coast. It's quite nice, as it, as it always is. Yes. Oh. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, here's what I want to do with you tonight. As you know, we're going to just jump right into it. A lot of this is just going to be having fun with follow-up questions. Now that we have the the crux of your story, the foundation of it all down, and the, the first thing I really would love for you to talk about is... A lot of confusion, I've been fielding a lot of questions, a lot of confusion about the chronovising. This is where I would love to start because when we discuss chronovising technology, uh, you listed eight different modalities through which you were traveling through time and, and viewing other time periods. But are you talking about, when you discuss chronovising, talking about gazing into the past through some sort of a television screen or are we talking about an immersive experience no that's confused the derivation of chronovision 
with what I was doing. So let me explain. Chronovision emerged at the Catholic University of Milan, a Vatican college in Italy in the 1940s. It emerged under the work of two Vatican musicologists who were prelates with the Vatican and who taught there at the Catholic University of Milan, Pellegrino Ernetti and Augustino, who also was known as Pier Maria Gemelli. He was the man who, for whom the second largest Vatican hospital was named, the very hospital that Pope John Paul II was convalescing in prior to his passing. So they were working on Gregorian chants. They wanted to find out why Gregorian chants have certain mystical properties, let's say healing properties. And they were working on a specialized microphone to split the voices of the Gregorian chants. And to their astonishment, something that Jamelli's father had said to him in childhood, an historical event, not a, an event from the afterlife, but an historical event in which he had called Jamelli my little zucchini, came through the device. Excited by the fact that they had retrieved essentially a sound of the past, they got with the most gifted quantum physicist in the world, who was also an Italian, um, Enrico Fermi. And by 1952, they in fact did have a flat screen television like Chronovisor, which of course in Italian they called Il Cronovisore. And, but they then, the Vatican then turned that technology that TV screen technology they had by 1952, over to the United States, typically the Navy. The Navy passed it on to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which of course was originally known as ARPA. And um, it ultimately got to Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, about 15 minutes from where I grew up. And over the next 18 years, by 1970, what they had done is they had taken that two-dimensional and um, flat-screen TV chronovisor by which they, for example, had retrieved the complete text of this famous poem written in, in early Latin in you know ancient Rome. And by 1952, they had images of Jesus of Nazareth. They then developed three-screen, or you know, third-screen um, chronovision, by developing a holograms, not just a TV-like screen. When I was brought in in 1970, they had fourth-dimensional chronovision. And what that means is when they put an electromagnetic signal through eight-sided bismuth crystals, a block, a cube of holographic light came out on the quote-unquote stage of the chronovisor. It was just a stage like any other, like a high school you know, play type stage or a symphony orchestra type stage. And when the hologram was fixed on the floor of that stage, it was a, what has been called a looking glass device. You could see into the past. But what they found is when you stood within that hologram, when you stood there and they brought the hologram down around you, it became a time machine. And what I found with the obsessive discussion of the chronovisor by um, publicists in the blogosphere like, let's say, Carrie Cassidy talking about Project Looking Glass, or Frank Jacob talking about the guardians of the Looking Glass, 
or Alfred Weber making recent radio statements in his discussion of the book, The Chronogarchy, which covers extrapolations of the implications of the time travel technologies that it was exposed to into sort of manipulation of the modern world by sort of a permanent secret government using time travel. Alfred talks about the flat screen TV uh, chronovisor again, and that, that by those three publicists in exopolitics, has not really been germane to the discussion since around 1952. Because after 1952, and partnering with Enrico Fermi, they were building more and more sophisticated chronovisors where they literally became time travel devices. So, for example, when I was sent in the first summer of 1971 to Ford's Theater in what they had set at April 14th, 1865, to see who shot President Lincoln, you may recall I described that every time they sent me there, the events changed a little bit. Yes. So the development of the chronovisor, not just as a looking glass device to see into the past, but to send somebody there, literally proved the multiverse. That's why they shut down time travel to the past involving American school kids, involving chronovisors, because the guy who was the head of the program, Project Pegasus, that was using this and developing this technology, not a project looking glass, but rather a, a sort of a, a looking glass or chronovisor sidebar to everything Project Pegasus was doing. They said every time we send the same child or another child to the quote unquote same moment in the past, the same time in, in time space, what I like to call a time place, it changes a little bit. So the chronovisor was more than just a looking glass phenomenon. It proved the multiverse, and it allowed American chrononauts to physically go to the past. I went to Lincoln's assassination site multiple times, at least at different places in time space. I've observed recently how when Walt Whitman, the American poet, said, you too shall be Lincoln, I think what he understood that because of the multiplicity of similar lives and similar events in different time-space dimensions in the multiverse, there's essentially a multiplicity of dimensions that we can be born into. Um, but that's essentially the significance of the chronovisor, that might be one of the most telling uh, contemporary papers about it was by Father Francois Brunet, B-R-U-N-E, or Brune. And he talked about the fact that Ernetti and Gemelli were not just achieving a looking glass into the past, but they were physically sending people there. And I know that the Vatican provenance of the chronovisor is the key one, because one day in fall of 1971, I was at the chronovisor, I was standing on the stage in the Morristown Performing Arts Center as it was under historical redevelopment. And I heard from one of the technicians that the Roman Catholic prelate in the, in the back of the auditorium was Father uh, Pello Grino Ernetti, one of the de two developers of the chronovisor, and he just wanted me to notice that Father Ernetti was a guest of honor at that DARPA chronovisor, so he could sort of see the development of his work by DARPA. Well, uh, so the, the Vatican connection was the key one. Uh, that, that, is, that is key there, and what I wanted to ask now is really even starting from the most basic model prototype that they had come up with in 1952, how do you calibrate it for times and places? 
Like if uh, if you were, I, I don't know, but they 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 had to basically measure, um, you know, height, width, length, and distance. Time is basically equatable to distance. For example, if you were standing at the foundation of the universe with your back to the beginning of time and space, you could have the entire expanse of the universe, or even the multiverse, in front of you. What would you need, however, to step up and step out and take one step into the universe? What would be the, the primary dimension you would need? It would be time. You would need the time to do it. It wouldn't matter if you could step forward, but you wouldn't go anywhere if you didn't have time to do that stepping forward, right? So they somehow had a way of integrating or synthesizing those four dimensions, length, width, depth, and distance. And that was equatable to time. That would make sense to me if they would have to go to a place, the actual place where something had happened and maybe count backwards from there. That, that's, that's the thing that, that, that boggles my mind. Let me ask you this, though. because you See, bo- but I was not a technician. I was not an engineer, an inventor, a physicist, like the individuals on the project, like my father, Raymond F. Bishago, like President Trump's uncle, John G. Trump, the other Parsons engineers that were on the project, like uh, Joe, Joseph Connison, uh, the physicists that were on the project, like um, Harold Agnew, Edward Teller, um, and uh, and so forth. Uh, the uh, president of New Mexico Tech, Dr. Sterling Colgate. These men were all sort of brilliant engineers, physicists, and mathematicians, and they somehow knew how to express time and space in mathematical ways. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, I wasn't. I was just a child time traveling. Well, well and, and I have to get around to that, too, especially I know that when it comes to wanting to take big leaps into a an unknown future, everybody puts a lot of things on the line, especially they start considering ethics and, uh, and there has to be some kind of ethical considerations for throwing children into this. So I want to talk about that at some point. And, and whereas I know that you aren't a, um, a, a mathematician and an inventor of this technology, but if you had you, cause you're talking about Gregorian chance and how the initial, the initial investigation into that led us to the first chronovisor was really about trying to figure out how these free, sound frequencies were were healing people. Um, it made me think about ancient societies who may not have had our technology, but had far more advanced spiritual understanding of how reality and time and dimension works. Um, we hear about portals in the desert cosmic journeys with ayahuasca things like that do you know of yeah. through, through your experience did you learn of any more ancient organic methods of doing time travel work um without the technology that we had to develop no i didn't but i can say that there was a connection to the use of children and the chronovisors of that i'm certain and what was that in the five types of reasons i've given for the use of children one of them i've used the phrase necessities Children were indeed necessities because when they put the EM signal through eight-sided bismuth crystals and that hologram shot out on the stage of what they were calling the chronovisor, which was really the fourth-dimensional chronovisor, so that when we stood in it, it sent us to those locations. When they used an adult, the sound defeated the chronovisor. The, a cough, a sneeze, 
a, a statement, a footfall um, of an adult would collapse the fragility because of the fragility of the hologram produced by the device. They needed children, or they they were going to use um, you know intelligent um, birth defected people who were very short who were adults. They decided on children because, as addition to being necessities, they we would be trainees because they wanted us to be the first generation of Americans uh, trained in time travel from earliest childhood. So those are two of the five reasons, but those are the ones that directly relate to the chronos. But what I'm trying to clean up is that there was a kind of a disinformation campaign directed by somebody, the Vatican, DARPA, the CIA, private industry that has an interest in this. I, I don't know. But there's there clearly was sort of a Project Looking Glass cover story in which they were going back to the original TV-like screen of Renetti and Gemelli, and he, they had achieved that with Fermi by 1952. They spent a good 20 years or so that I got caught up in by 1970, you know, a good 18 years since the development of that TV-like screen time-seeing time device, chronovisor, time-seeing device, so that the real significance of the chronovisor was when they turned it over to Bell Labs, you know, and, and when DARPA was working on it, not the Vatican. I wasn't working for the Vatican. I was a Catholic school kid who had been baptized when I was two months old and would be confirmed I would go through First Communion at 7 and be confirmed at age 13. But that was just something to look into my background to see if I would be in this DARPA program. It was not a Catholic program that I was in. It was a U.S. governmental program, a DARPA program, not a DARPA CIA, as some people have alleged, but a DARPA program. DARPA is not an intelligence agency. It is a technical development agency. It's not an investigative agency. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, it's been kind of obscured by being called the DARPA CIA Project Pegasus. That's not true. So DARPA was using kids because they needed to, not to just see into the past, but to put somebody in that hologram without making the hologram collapse. It was a technical need that they had to use children. And if we were going to use the chronovisor to help win the Cold War without a nuclear war, they were willing to risk the lives of American children doing that because we'd all be dead if there was a nuclear war. So it was an ethical thing they were doing. But that's the significance of the chronovisor, that it became a time machine when the hologram they propagated to see in time was brought in around you, you went there. I mean, the first scene I saw of a chronovisor image was this beautiful image from England around the year 1500. It was like a Tudor castle. And a young stable mate was walking diagonally across the grounds of the castle wearing this sort of gray brocaded shirt and tights and these fancy boots. And he was the same color as the uh, gray mayor that he was leading across the, the grounds of this gray Tudor castle. So they gave us a very striking image of, you know, um, antiquarian England just to kind of get us excited about the scenes into the past that the chronovisor could get. But then they put us on the stage and turned the device on, and we suddenly went to a, a Civil War battlefield in, in progress, and we were being yelled at and protected by Union soldiers, and then ultimately I dived under a berm as Confederate forces jumped over me. Some actually stopped and asked whether they should 
you know, shoot me or stab me with their bayonets or whatever. Well, Andrew, Andrew, let me um, let me ask you right there, and I might have asked this back in September, but I don't I don't remember. Uh, just like with the movie in the Matrix, what if you had taken a bullet at that point? If you if you die in the hologram, do you die? Period. Well, we were told by Jack Pruitt, who trained us on the chronovisor, that when we first went there, like for the first fifteen minutes, we were a superluminal superimposition. We were like in their time like ghosts are in ours, okay. which is a really interesting revelation by Pruitt, who was an intrinsic part of Project Pegasus as a team leader in it and became the research director of Project Montauk in the early 80s. Uh, so what they were saying is, like, if they sent us back to the time of the dinosaurs, which they did, they sent us to 100 million B.C. But that was the time of the dinosaurs where there were just vegetarian dinosaurs. So now... When we were in for fewer than 15 minutes, we were in three-dimensional chronovision. We couldn't be injured. We were just superluminal, superimposition in their time and, and place. But if we were in for about longer than 15 minutes, we were physically there, and we could suffer any of the ill effects. You know, it could be shot, stabbed, eaten by animals or whatever. And so, in fact, our lives were in danger. And when because I was at the meeting where they shut down time travel to, to the past involving American school kids, involving these third and then fourth dimensional chronovisor experiences. The leader of the program said, especially in light of the danger to the kids involved, we've elected to shut down this aspect of Project Pegasus. And all the 20 or 30 uh, members of the program there, including my dad, sort of groaned. And my dad was very angry as we walked out of Sandia Auditorium uh, into the, uh, you know, crisp air of that that fall day and um you know he said even though we're getting images that change every time we send a kid to one of these places they are it's still intelligence it's still data about the past and even though it's changing it's still telling us about the multiverse so he was quite angry that they made that decision but yes we could have lost our lives in the chronovisor experience now when i described on many radio shows how the holograms in this modern chronovisor, the chronovisor that existed by 1970, after 20 years of work, even even 30, since Ernetti and Gemelli developed the original chronovisor in Italy in the 1940s, at least a good 25 years later, um, they, um, I, I described how my dad said that the holograms were propagated putting an EM signal, an electromagnetic signal through eight-sided bismuth crystals. And then a researcher in Britain named Wynne Keach found a, um, a U.S. patent from 1967 that was given the legendary Japanese-American physicist Leo Asaki, who was sometimes called Leo Isaki. And the first person listed in the prior arts section, the prior works section of that patent was a 1952 patent that was granted my father, Raymond F. Bashago, and his colleague at the Thomas A. Edison Research Labs in West Orange, New Jersey, a man by the name of Neil T. Williams. And that patent, what was it about? Bismuth crystal. So that's one of the proofs of my Project Pegasus claims. You cannot <laughs> plant a patent, much less one with your own father's name, first, middle, and last, you know, first, middle, initial, and last name in a U.S. patent. It's, it's, it's a real thing. 
And it shows my dad was working with business crystals. And I had talked about what he said about the derivation of the hologram uh, in the um, fourth dimensional chronovisors many times. And there it was. It well, was a reference well, to Andrew, him. In a, Andrew, I've got, I got some questions here about, about the whole concept of a ghost. Uh, I think that that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting place to start trotting off into, and that is, what kind of, what kind of insight did you collect about the about the nature of the human soul? Um, whereas I, I know that you were projected into into the past as a very you know overlaid ghost figure with obviously that fifteen minute uh, period. A grace period evaporating and then you're actually there dropped in but it makes me start wondering about other things there and since you are very um you you dealt with a lot of interdimensional stuff with mars which we'll talk about in a little bit i'm just wondering as far as the the the, the overall nature of the human soul and what we're doing here did you ever take away any bigger realizations about that especially when you're you're going into the past and very very much so very much so. i'm glad you asked that because we were told one day in 1970 by a woman from darpa who was a past life regressionist she said kids we know you're reasonably afraid of time traveling for the government we want you to know that the worst thing that could happen is you could lose your life time traveling this program but we want you to know that you have a spirit sometimes called a soul that cannot die your body can be killed but they can't kill your soul if your body is killed in this program by anything for any reason your soul will leave your body and go on back to heaven you'll go through a tunnel just like the teleporter tunnel you've been growing accustomed of and but this tunnel will take you to heaven you might see some deceased relatives you might meet angels or spirit guides you might even meet jesus and certainly because of your age, if you do die at this age, there are literally angels who look after kids. So you'll probably encounter angels, and you'll know it. They'll look like angels. And don't worry. You'll just get another body and live another life. What they were telling us is that our spirits don't die, that we're being brought through about 10,000 lives, and that ultimately those lives ascend to a higher state of existence. Scripture says that we're born a little bit below the angels. Angels comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. We're not at that stage yet. We're, we're, ready, we're ready to impart messages to other beings. But they told us unequivocally that that is the nature of, of life. And when Jack said that we would be like ghosts in, in their time, like, like ghosts are in our time, ghosts are several things. One is they are residual hauntings. They are the emanations of things that once existed in this time and space. They are also beings who have stayed here and not gone on to heaven. They're trapped souls. That's why I suggested to Adam Berry, Amy Bruni, and Chip Coffey the phrase kindred spirits for their great show on television. Now, I gave that to them when I did um, uh, the uh, that um, program on ghosts in San Antonio, Texas in 2015. I said, I've got a great idea for the name of a show about ghosts. We're always making these scary stories of hauntings by people who have stayed. But we have to remember that trapped souls are still kindred spirits of ours. 
And I said, why don't you go for some of that high tech and the high touch of that, you know, the high tech and the high touch of that kind of title. And to my astonishment, they've used it successfully. But I think kindred spirit is a better way to view ghosts than these scary emanations from some unknown place. The reason that kin, you know, that trapped soul, that that earth, you know earthbound spirits are frightening is because they are frightened. They're stuck here, and I mean I remember that Chip Coffee told me when he picked me up at the uh, at the San Antonio uh, airport for that for that uh, conference back in 2015 that he's freed as many as a thousand earthbound spirits who are stuck here. So if you look at a ghost and it's scary, as I look, for example, at the ghost of Sadie on the Cal Poly San Luis Obispo campus, a ghost that's been seen by thousands of people who live in the central coast of California over the last 100, 150, well, 100, yeah, about 150 years, 140 years. She was a woman who had died in the um, 1880s by being killed by her suitor, and she was so su surprised to leave her body that she got trapped here. Now, when earthbound spirits get trapped, they are they, they begin to deteriorate. They, be, they begin to spiritually unravel and become frightened. They but, are not here to frighten us. And, and, they but, are frightened. But, Andrew, let me ask you this, though. I, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and you have a you have some woman from DARPA comes in and tells a bunch of children, well, listen, if you if there's anything if everything ever happens to you you'll, and you die, the worst thing that can happen is you die. You're going to go to heaven. Um, and, but then again, if what what if you die a hundred million BC by getting eaten by an animal and you were caught by surprise and not very happy when it happened and you're just stuck on earth for a hundred million years haunting some ancient prehistoric jungle i mean there, there seems like that could be a lot almost like a false promise you can make a lot of children right there there could be a lot that can go wrong there no well after i was regressed even actually before it i was having memories of past lives now in several of those lives i stayed around for a couple of days and sort of was haunting my environs. What usually happens when that happens, when you stayed and not immediately gone through the tunnel of light to go back to heaven when you physically died, is several angels are sent and they literally beckon you to fly up between them and you'll find the tunnel. So it's very rare that there are earthbound spirits. Somebody in the um, York Rite of Freemasonry who would invited me to become a Freemason, but I decided not to on the George Byrne principle that I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Hmm. And uh, they described that they had been trying to find and, you know, reach that spirit called Sadie for three generations of San Luis Obispo Freemason. So usually angels are sent to recover you. And I don't really have enough expertise to say, has anybody been sent via like time space travel to you know 100 million bc and then been stuck there but it, it seems to be possible but the key thing is that's not the purpose of life the purpose of life is to learn how to learn and to learn to love those are the two most critical missions that we're all on as as temporarily earthbound spirits but usually 
when the body dies, the spirit goes on. And it's only an emergency or a tragedy, maybe affecting about one out of every 10,000 deaths when somebody is an earthbound spirit. But they do exist, and they often do unexplained things in people's houses. I mean, I've spoken to people who have been haunted by earthbound spirits, and they do exist. There's earthbound spirits, um, there's residual energy from things that have already happened, and there are creatures, obviously, from other dimensions. I played with a ghost, a little boy, my age when I was a child. I was shooting with a little sort of suction cup gun at this toy I had gotten for my birthday or Christmas, and a kid literally jumped through the wall and played that game with me. Now, the problem with that, the reason that was impossible by ordinary experience, is I was on the third floor of our house, my bedroom, and it was about 30 feet above ground, so there was no way for a child to jump through the, the wall at that level. He couldn't get through the wall, and he couldn't have jumped from the ground into the third floor of our house. He was in some other area of time space, and he thought, oh, that's interesting. That little boy over there in that dimension is playing that. I think I'll play with him. And I literally handed him the suction cup gun, and he was successful with the target as I was, and he laughed, and he gave me the gun and then jumped back through the wall and disappeared. Right then, my mother, who was two stories down in the kitchen, said, come on, boys, time to go back to school. And then Johnny, the little boy up the street who I'd walked home with, was staring through the front screen of our, our house, our front, front door. So he wasn't the one who was playing with me. Why did my mother say, come on, boys, time to go back to school? In other words, my mom heard me playing with this kid. But this kid was not a kid from the neighborhood. He was a ghost. He was a, a specter from some other dimension. So those are the three things that ghosts are. They're either earthbound spirits from a previous life, they're just residual signals from events that have already happened, and they're not really there, or they're beings from another dimension that so, decide to have contact with you. That's very interesting, uh, the, the, relationship, the relationship between all, all three of them. And I, I, I want to get into that a little bit more, especially because I, I know we only have about a half hour, 29 minutes left, so I want to get into some of these missions, and perhaps one of them can um can bring us back around to a little bit more of e eternal themes there especially when we get around to some of the things that you have you've witnessed on well, a fact, on, let me let me let me ask this yeah why would they be telling four or five kids in morris plains new jersey that their souls don't die were they being sadistic i mean if our souls if they knew our soul did perish and life was short and then ended wouldn't they be depriving us of a full experience of life? No. Wouldn't they, that be rather irresponsible and even sadistic? No. Well, I, I, they were. This was a representative from the Defense Department, and so I think that that has standing as I think as information. A. I. I don't think it's bad information because I believe in the in the the eternal soul, um, but uh, also. It is a, a very good thing to tell children who may be nervous embarking on a serious string of experiments like this, too. So it's just, it might just be a, a sure, comedy. It could, it could have been encouragement to make us non-fearful. Right. But still, if they knew that we could perish, that would have been highly irresponsible. And these were very responsible officials. Um, now, as far as your missions go, 
I want to. We didn't spend a lot of time on on Mars the last time we were we were on with each other, but uh, you did say that I think you you made some kind of reference as far as Mars not being a physical place, but it was an interdimensional situation. So uh, can you talk about that and also talking about you mentioned that there being predators on Mars in addition to you thinking that it wasn't a physical planet. So um, what I meant was this: we have to evaluate where and how you get to a place to determine where you are because wherever you are that's where you are and the way we my point was that the way we were getting to mars was through a, a device under the direction of a still quite alive howard hughes it was called an aeronautical repositioning chamber or arc the vernacular terms were jump room or space elevator and we were standing in the main elevator at 999 north sepulveda where Hughes had a, uh, a fourth floor office, and I met him there several times. And we would go up that main elevator and then sign in on the fifth floor, visit the seventh floor if we needed to pick up a gun. I would always have a gun when I went to Mars, a photo flash gun. And then ultimately we'd go to the eighth floor. And then we were asked, are you ready to go? And we were trained to say up to the, the roof of the elevator, ready to go to Mars. And then over the next five minutes, it would morph from a box-like structure into a cylindrical-like st- uh, structure. And that would go on for about 10 minutes, and then it would write itself into a box-like structure, and then it would be completely normal again as an elevator-like device. And then the far wall would open up, and we were in the sub-basement of a U.S. facility on the Red Planet. So the point I was making about an interdimensional Mars is because we were getting there through this interdimensional means involving this bizarre box-like machine, this quantum access machine that morphed from a box into a cylinder and then back again and then opened up on Mars, I don't think we can discount the possibility that we were going to Mars in a dimensional sense rather than a physical sense that we were going to, for example, a form of exoplanetary chronovision, because this program was an outgrowth of Project Pegasus. Some people, Bernard Mendez, who were going to Mars with me, have even alleged that um, Project Mars was the latter stage of Project Pegasus. Um, So that's the point I was making. That's why I'm speaking of myself as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Mars during the advent of time travel, excuse me, Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel, and Project Mars during the advent of interdimensional travel. I've noted, for example, that a few years before I was sent to Mars in this means, after having already time traveled using those eight modalities I've described that were used in Project Pegasus, a a, a series of adventure novels with some sort of light porn that would be of interest to young men teenage and early 20-something men, um, called uh, Blade by Richard Lord, was placed in my closet in our our house in in California. And what what Blade does is enter this box-like structure, and he comes out in some sort of alternate environment and has sort of an interdimensional adventure. Um, So I think they were just getting us used to that concept of that form of time travel. I believe that Project Mars 
is rightfully described as the advent of interdimensional travel because of the means used. I do believe that we weren't um, going to, to Mars from Earth to Mars like, let's say, the space capsule was from Earth to the moon during the six missions to the moon. I believe it was something else, and they knew it. And that's why they would, you know, they'd have Ed Dames interview us for, let's say, a half hour to an hour when we would get back to 999 North Sepulveda. He would say, okay, what happened next? And what did that look like? And what did that feel like? I think they didn't know whether it was physically Mars in this solar system or it was a Mars-like planetoid in some other dimension that this quantum access device was able to reach. That time travel is really going on rather than interplanetary travel. So I've stopped describing myself upon introduction as an, a U.S. astronaut involved in the advent of interplanetary travel. I don't think we can be called astronauts in the same way. We were chrononauts, and this was not a journey from here to there in the actual physical solar system. Something more interdimensional was going on. And that would explain why, for example, when Courtney M. Hunt went up there with myself and his wife, Linda, they walked out of a dangerous tunnel in which there were always predators sitting at the end of that tunnel. And that would be because somehow they knew that if they had sort of an interdimensional belief that they weren't going to be attacked, they wouldn't be. So I do believe it was fundamentally an interdimensional experience going on. So when you, when you say predators, <clears throat> are you talking about uh, interdimensional or any kind of extraterrestrial, not, uh, not from, from our, they our... were There were two types that were inevitably lethal. One was reptoid. It was about a 16-foot-tall uh, velociraptor-type um, body of a, a dinosaur and a T-Rex head, but it looked a little bit more like a chicken than T-Rex. But I watched that just eviscerate a 45-year-old fellow chrononaut of mine named Bob. Oh, so you've seen, then, people, you've seen people die before in the, in, in the line of uh, duty, huh? Oh, yeah, and there was a 16-year-old kid from California named David who we also watched being eviscerated by one of those reptoids. Now, the other inevitably lethal predator... When I say inevitably lethal, I mean inevitably dangerous, was the, the reptoid one. Uh, bit the, the, the kid David on the stomach and he died. But the reason I think that this interdimensional reality was making these events non-inevitably lethal is people were being killed and then they would show up at the jump rooms and say, I want to go home. Now, how did they do that if they were dead? In other words, literally seeing them being eviscerated by these physical predators was sometimes resulting in them springing back to life. That's more evidence that it was an interdimensional probe of some kind because the chronovision wasn't, what had happened to them in the chronovision, chronovision process was not remaining embedded, in, deeply embedded in the quantum hologram. That's why Bernard Mendes was assigned to Project Mars. By the Air Force. So you oh so, okay so I I have some mysteries. I have to stop you right there, Andrew, because I I want to make sure I get this right. So you're saying that the the reason why you believe that this was not any kind of a uh, a project in particular where you were traversing space space um, is that the same kind of rules applied where you couldn't be harmed within that 15 minutes. 
Well, it was either that when they were killed, because David was certainly killed within 15 minutes of when we got up there. But I'm saying that it was it was a time-space effect of being in that location, but there was something physically missing because we had colleagues who clearly were killed. We would even test their vitals after being killed. But then later they would show up at the jump room and ask to go home. That happened a number of times, and that's why Bernie was assi- Bernie Mendez was assigned to the project. He was not, you know, in his late teens or early 20s like we were. He was like more around, I don't know, 27 to 35 years of age. And he had deep background research being a kind of the Indiana Jones of U.S. government ET liaison. And he really knew how to investigate. He was a skilled investigator. And that's why he was assigned to Project Mars. So I, I think the effort that's been grappled with in the secret space program is that a lot of these people with memories, there's some that are opportunists, some that are delusional, and some that are disinformants who are making up stories. But among the ultimately credible um, claimants in the literature of the secret space program, that the secret space program, as it's called, should really be talked about as the American interdimensional space program, the American interdimensional time-space exploration of other worlds, just as Blade had done in that series by Richard Lord. I believe that's what the program was dedicated to. It was not space travel, not an extension or elaboration of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo and the space shuttle. It was something else. It was interdimensional travel. So do you think and that there, everything that uh, Elon Musk is doing right now, is, is that on, what, what do you f- have, feel about Elon Musk, all the money that's being put into actually firing a rocket and taking human beings all that way over the course of months to the, this little red planet and, uh, and, and colonizing that way by way of rocket? Do you think that there's, from your experience, you think that there's probably some ulterior motive? Is it all a, a big ruse? Do you think it's possible at all? Well, he has certainly uh, he has certainly not reached out to somebody like myself. I mean, I I had arrived as a sco- an environmental scholar and a journalist before talking about Project Pegasus and Project Mars because I did all that stuff by age twenty two. And I went on to earn five advanced degrees. And I've worked with many, many distinguished world citizens, people that are in the Encyclopedia Britannica, Norman Cousins, Jim Mars, uh, Buckminster Fuller, Captain Jacques Cousteau, among others, many others, Alfred Weber. And I'm the, the, the kind of person that Elon Musk should have reached out to years ago, and I was giving him a, a clue that he should because I was completely on top of what we did in Project Mars. Uh, Explorers have been to Mars, at least in a form of time-space travel that allowed us to experience what was on Mars. It may have been a place that, yes, when we were killed by predators, we then snapped back and were not dead, but we were experiencing what was on Mars. Uh, So I, I think that he wants to be the first uh, to discover, um, to you know, put people on Mars, just like that man at the University of Connecticut stores wants to be the man to discover time travel, and it was developed 50 years ago. His name is escaping me right now. 
um, the black gentleman who works at the University of Connecticut at Stores, he wants to be the first person to achieve time travel. And when I was telling him about how I was in the DARPA program that operationalized eight modalities of time travel 50 years ago last year by 1972, he was appearing with me at um, on media productions and just rolling his eyes and sort of well, that's believing me. That's the way. That's the way that stuff happens. All I mean, they they have people like uh, Michio Kaku going on on uh, NBC or whatever it was with Charlie Rose a couple of years ago, talking about weather manipulation with lasers as if it's something that's just being figured out right now. So they, they a lot of that stuff is is just about to about muddying the playing field and making. I approached Michio Kaku forty years ago at a Committee to Bridge the Gap meeting in West Los Angeles, led by my then professor, uh, Dan Hirsch, the founder of that group. It was an anti-war uh, group and an anti-nuclear energy group during those years. Dan would go on to, fa- to found the Stevenson Center for Nuclear Policy at UC Santa Cruz. And I approached Dr. Kaku and said, what are your views of advanced applications in quantum physics? And he said, what do you mean, like like teleportation? I said, yeah. And he said, well, they didn't let me into any of that stuff by, because I refused to make more advanced nuclear, you know, more destructive nuclear weapons with for Doctor, you know, with and for Doctor Edward Teller. And I said, oh, really? So you weren't let into those secrets? And as he was walking away from me, I said, well, I was because I was teleporting, for example, in a program with um, Doctor Harold Agnew back in the early seventies. And he literally walked away from me and would not talk to me. And then Dr. Kaka went on 10, 20 years later, writing authoritative books about when time travel would be discovered. And he would not let me tell him this, the discovery of time travel, the, the derivation of operational time travel. So many of these supposed scientists are not let into the secrets within the puzzle palace, mm-hmm. as James Bamford called it, you know, in regard to the NSA, for example. And then they try to be authoritative scientifically. So they, modern scientists engage in this sort of cognitive dissonance. We're only going to talk about what we know, but we know everything that exists, even when we haven't been let into the secrets. That's just a completely inconsistent opinion, and that's what Dr. Kaku, Dr. Stephen um, Hawking, Dr. David uh, Deutsch at Oxford, and uh, that other gentleman uh, have been advancing. We know everything, but we haven't been let on everything, and we can talk about what doesn't exist. That is simply an, an illogical premise to, to defend, and they defend it in their very to their very being. You know, Michio doesn't want to talk to me when I've I'm just closing out on my experiences on Mars and I had time travel 10 years earlier as a kid and yet he goes on to write books about when time travel will be discovered. Uh, you know, it's like I recently heard uh, Carl Johan Kalman, that famous uh, Swedish physicist say we have little evidence of the multiverse. Well, has he talked to me about Project Pegasus proof of the multiverse. Well, Andrew, are there do you, are there anybody? And 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 after this this question, we only have ten minutes left, so I I want to get a, a couple of like almost like rapid fire things in with you. But have you ever 
uh, what about other members of your chrononaut class? Uh, as I've, I've read into it, you said that there's been over 50,000 people that have been uh, brought into these experiments over the, the, the generations now, the many generations that this has been um, worked on. Um, well, no, actually what, what I was describing is there have been 50,000 Americans who are so-called ghosts within the intel community and military. They're used, abused, and then thrown off deck, and they're not paid, they're not credited. And when the gov- when people try to explore where they were in these programs, the government lies and says they, there was no such program, and, and they've never heard of the persons. So then as, as far um, as other people, other ch- children that you came up in the system with, is there anybody else I that does the work? I did find children who, for example, teleported me. Since the Tesla teleportation that we did first as the most advanced application in quantum physics, was so basic to what we did, you know, teleporting from New Jersey to New Mexico, stopping in Solano, Ohio, in either direction, to use the Swage Lock headquarters to go back to New Mexico or forward to New Jersey, or back to New Jersey, uh, was the essence of the Tesla teleportation experiments. I knew if I found anybody else who remembered those, those jumps via teleportation, I would have proven my experiences in Project Pegasus, and I did. And I have I had them on several radio broadcasts. One of them was somebody from Mount Fury Road School in my area of New Jersey, four years older, a gentleman by the name of Mark DePrimo. He was in the same class as several of my uh, siblings, my twin brother and sister. And his four-year younger sister, Sharon DePrimo, was one of the children in my learning lab in my experience of Project Pegasus. But on the air, like the Dave Schrader show, Chris and Cherie Geo's um, Truth Frequency Radio, Mark acknowledged that he had teleported from New Jersey to New Mexico with me. He even remembered running through the Baton Memorial Building in Santa Fe and slipping on the floor because they had just waxed the floor. And we were sort of running along with this excited tribal horde. We were actually kids from, you know, that, in that jump, we were all males, all, all boys. Mm-hmm. We were sort of excited to have jumped across the country, and we were running through this slippery building in New Mexico. And he remembered that they had put one of the Mercury space capsules in the corner of that hallway. So he came forward. I spoke to the boy who lost his feet, who has still not given me permission to talk about his accident. But I and Mark confirmed the identity of that person. So I have found fellow chrononites from my New Jersey elementary school who have confirmed remembering teleporting with me. That's an, that, that, see that, th- those are the types of things that go a long way for people when they start they start really stockpiling content and, and wanting to build a, a bigger picture in their head of how deep this goes and corroborating stories because obviously your wealth of information and memory and detail but um, th- th- those are those are equally interesting points. Now, with the, the little bit of time we have left, I just want to toss you some things, and if you can stay as concise as you can, we can get through as many as we can in the next few minutes. W- have you ever, in your travels, been directed to see any kind of advanced, now gone, and in many ways legendary civilizations like Atlantis? No. I think they didn't want to do that probably because they had unknown knowledge of what was there and it might be too dangerous. What about they were sending us mostly to fairly innocuous places? Okay. 
Well, the, the dinosaurs isn't very innocuous. That's that's well, that's... but they told us they were sending us to the time of the dinosaurs when they were all vegetarian. Mm. So they would not try to eat us as as flesh and blood creatures. All right. Well, how about how about giants, Nephilim, anything anything along that way? No. How about the pyramids? That's always something that comes up. Um, <laughs> where, where you... I have a very gifted psychic who's seen me visiting the pyramids. I I never have. But no, I didn't visit the construction of the pyramids via time travel. Okay. Again, they were avoiding periods when kids wouldn't be respected or kept alive. You know, they might not be concerned about children. So that ruled out some ancient, uh, mysterious places that might be of interest. Well, you had said in earlier discussions, and not only that, but this was this was part of where the the Vatican people at the Vatican had taken their prototypes and honed in all of their their uh, chronovising technology to try to confirm and witness some of the events of Jesus Christ's life, including the crucifixion yes. and the yeah, resurrection. In fact, my dad did that at Sandia National Labs in the summer of 1972. Mm-hmm. They had scenes of Jesus of Nazareth's ministry. I saw what looked like maybe the wedding at Canaan. Um, his crucifixion, which was hideous in the extreme to watch, Jesus suffered immensely on the cross. I would not want anybody to suffer like he did. And my dad assured his longtime friend Connie Chavez and I, as we left the viewing, that they also had footage of Jesus' resurrection. So they were using chronovision to solve critical questions like that, and they did. And that's why I'm speaking out on one level, because my mentor at UCLA, Norman Cousins, wrote a book, In God We Trust, in which he reminds everybody that except for Benjamin Franklin, all of the founders of this great country were individuals who recognized the divinity of Jesus and were very religious. Look at, for example, George Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation. Thanksgiving was not begun by Lincoln. It was not begun in the truest sense by the Native American people who greeted the pilgrims. The actual holiday, Thanksgiving, although it had ancient substrates among the Native people of welcoming other tribes and enjoying the the food of the land upon greeting others to the New World, the actual federal holiday was based on the Washington's Proclamation of 1789. And I, I dare anybody to read that proclamation and not see the religiosity of Washington. Now, in God We Trust, Norman Cousins shows that that was the belief of all of the great founders, Thomas Jefferson, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, you know, and so forth. So how can we suppress the footage that shows the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? I asked myself the same question, but at the, but then it would also... Uh... How far would it go in actually destroying the need to have faith? You know, so there is that. But on the other hand, if you have it, oh man, I mean, it's uh, the, the, you're. I will. I would love to see it, no doubt about it. And I, um, I think about that often, especially when I'm red. But so you, you never. That's something you saw. Or your father saw the resurrection. My father saw the resurrection, but I learned about it as a ten-year-old. So I never had to become born again. You know, when I said on Coast to Coast AM that I, I believed in the, uh, I, was, I, 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 I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that was a little bit of an overstatement. Because what I really meant was 
I never questioned the divinity, special nature of Jesus of Nazareth. Because as a 10-year-old, my dad described what his team of advanced time-space physicists had recovered. And those were scenes in which two angels showed up, and Jesus stood up and with a burst of light, and the angels helped Jesus push the rock away from his cliff, and he walked out. So I never doubted the special nature of Jesus. Hold on, Andrew. You're getting you're getting very muffled. You're you're getting very muffled right now. If you don't know, if, I don't know if you are holding. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's it's my cell phone. So what I'm saying is, I was so young when my dad confirmed his scientific finding of proof of Jesus's resurrection and his special nature that I never had to become born again because it was very easy for me to pray at a young age and then pray again when I was on Mars. Uh, to Jesus, which I do every day, sometimes a number of times in a day, because I knew of his divine nature from my father's testimony, just like if your father told you there was a bear in the woods. Now, I'm sure that that's what he was had seen. Now, I thought, well, why did they suppress it and not let us see it and not release it to the people? I think it was probably the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution allows for the free exercise of religion. We're a polytheistic country, but also prohibits uh, the establishment of a religion. I think they were thinking that if they released the footage, the chronovisor-based moving images, the film of that hologram showing Jesus is rising again, that that would establish the Christian religion as the religion of the United States. I, so I think they did something very ethical and did not release it. It could of the establishment clause. It could, the, the, you could argue that that would be the the issue. But if if the if the crucifixion had been caught on chronovisor from a generation one prototype that the Vatican itself had created, wouldn't that be in the best interests of the Roman Catholic Church to? say that their entire existence is based on now what is now scientific fact? Yeah, see, but by then, by 1972, the program was out of Vatican hands. It was in the hands of DARPA. My father, although a Roman Catholic and a Knights Templar, in other words, a, a member of the sovereign Vatican order of the Knights Templar in the Catholic context, was simply a Roman Catholic adherent going to confession and taking the Eucharist at Mass every Sunday. He wasn't working for the Vatican. He was working for the U.S. government. And that was a decision the U.S. government, not the Vatican, was free to, to make. Right. And they did. And they, they determined that they would show scenes of Jesus so that people would know he existed, but not scenes of his resurrection, because that would go too much toward establishing a state religion. Let me ask you this final question as we hit the 11 o'clock hour now. Um, uh, and the, obviously there's there's still so much more, and, and I'd love to have you back on sometime over the spring. But how sure how privatized has time travel become at this point? Do you, do you think? Because I remember learning from shows like Art Bell when he had Madman Markhamon calling in however many times with homemade experiments in time travel. You have people like Dr. David Lewis Anderson with the Anderson Institute for Time Travel. It seems like, yeah. it, you know, as you said, if, if, if the Vatican 
had stumbled upon chronovising, early chronovising uh, technology in 1952 just by studying Gregorian chants, then it, it, it does go to stand for to reason that anybody else out there could find a way with far more advanced consumer-grade technology that we have available to us now, uh, you know, 70 years later, that I think more Frank, people can do this on their own. you're asking, and I know what you're implying, I believe needs to be the subject of a Senate investigation with open hearings. When I was on the project, Project Pegasus, individuals like my dad were ethical in adhering to their investment limitations, which was only to invest in Texas and Oklahoma oil and natural gas stocks. Those stocks were removed from our house by a relative of mine when my mother passed away in 2003, not when my dad died in 1990. I know that those stocks were from his pay for Project Pegasus, but were other people in the program, especially in the Bush-Cheney-Rumsfeld coalition within the program that found its expression pop potentially in something like the Carlisle Group? Did those forces also exist who, for example, would invest in airline stocks before airline stocks exploded? I think that ha that did happen. Now, I've had friends, let's say, from my UCLA years who, let's say, went to law school and then were tipped off about something that was going to become huge. I don't want to name names because I don't want to invite a lawsuit. But what I'm saying is they did nothing in the law or in business, and they got one tip, and some of them become worth, let's say, a half a billion dollars. So has there been privateering, both in terms of buying stocks and informing different government operatives of who to go to work for because their, their stocks are going to explode, stocks that they would be partially paid in as employees of specific companies? Yes, I believe that privateering has gone on in the margins of Project Pegasus. As much as Weber, for example, has spoken of a chronogarchy in a book by that title, The Chronogarchy, I think we should speak of the chrono economy. I think that the worst thing that's happened about Project Pegasus is not sort of the use of time travel to manipulate people to advance the deep state and the so-called permanent secret government. I think it's been used to privateer in a way it was not supposed to. Mm -hmm. There was not a prosecution of those who were privateering. There was also ultimately a usurpation of the executive branch of government by such privateers. And I, again, I do not want to name names. I don't want to invite a lawsuit. But I believe it should be the subject of Senate hearings and a Senate investigation. Well, maybe we talk about issues like that and and maybe in in a vague way as vague as we can get it talk about other things that could have been privateered events over over the course of the years that this technology has become a little bit more proliferated and um but i i i can't thank you enough for coming on again tonight to amend all of the things we talked about back in september uh andrew and i i hope that you're you'll uh, accept an invitation to come back on sometime in the spring. I certainly will. I certainly will. Is there anything that, that you have going on now that you'd like everybody to know about? Any appearances? Uh, anything that you're you're working on for getting published? Uh, anything that you want to leave people with? I'm, I'm going to be appearing again, and I'm appearing regularly with um, Gary Anderson 
on Night Dreams Talk Radio. What's interesting about that is Gary and I are going to be speaking about an issue close to our hearts, which is the fact that the artificial kidney has been invented. It has to go through two expensive processes, but they're all affordable. One is the product testing and you know, the clinical trials, and the other is manufacturing. And that's going to focus on California because Dr. William Frizzell, one of the two inventors with um, Dr. Sunjo Roy of Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, um, is in uh, California. He's at the University of California, San Francisco. And California has recently gotten attention for some very questionable spending in net transfer payments every month, particular Californians of different ethnicities and different gender orientation. They're thinking, for example, of spending $1,200 a month on transsexuals, which I find highly dubious and questionable. I think instead we need to focus on the 3.3 million Americans, our fellow citizens, who have to endure usually three four-hour sessions of dialysis every week when their kidneys have failed, such as I, mine have and Gary's have. And so we're both going to be appearing in regard to my material, but we're also going to be describing how people can donate to the Artificial Kidney Project. Imagine that. We can eliminate a class of disease in our time. It's not just going to be one of those medical charity campaigns, well, give us money and we might solve something, we might discover something. It's going to be, please give us money to get your fellow citizens literally off of dialysis, that blood draining and blood purifying process. But I can tell you, it just zaps your energy regularly, three times a week. We have, we, we're in a, a world in which the artificial kidney project can lead the way to a generation of artificial organs that could extend human life from you know 60 years to 120 years. And that is not some pie in the sky statement by me, that is reality. So we have to get beyond this rather difficult time we've been in and we have to think anew and create anew. And my proposal to do so is to complete the clinical trial and the manufacture of both the iHemo within five years and the hemo filter within seven and we can build it and literally have all Americans in kidney failure with artificial kidneys installed. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Oh. And it would leave the world in the fact that science and technology can be used to enhance, you know, to protect and extend human life, not to destroy it. And you, you know, that's why I became an environmental lawyer was to do that. Well, you so let me. You let us know. Talking about you let us know, Andrew. If, if you, whenever you're you're going to do a uh, a, a, a any kind of an appearance or anything like that, I'll put it on out there. And and I I wish you luck in in that venture because we know we know firsthand um, and 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 very recently too how how bad all that is and kidney well, wouldn't failure. Wouldn't that be gain of function, real function? Oh yeah, functioning human beings. Functioning With human beings that work. That would you know, be wonderful. Really, all that dialysis does is it cleans your blood and it removes fluid from your body so you don't drown in your own fluid. You don't, uh, your, your heart and your lungs don't stop working because of too much fluid in the body, so-called edema, pulmonary edema, cardiac edema. Now, imagine that, a, a world in which there is no longer any kidney failure. That, in, that alone will 
save millions and millions of people around the world and extend human life for everybody, because that usually happens to everybody. The kidneys are a very sensitive pair of organs. What we found with me is I only really have one, like Ed Masry did and Aaron Brockovich. I've got two kidneys, but one of them is, is very small. Maybe it didn't grow enough because of my prepubescent exposures in Project Pegasus. But we can do it. It's not money to imagine what we can achieve you know, that's or maybe one. achieve things. It's that's, to build this device. That's a question I'm sure you get a lot. Uh, I, I know that you're legally blind as well. Do you think? Do you think that this is all from your time traveling? It was really a combination. It was my eyes and kidneys were weakened by the technology and those two programs. They were dangerous, you know, new, dangerous, experimental. But then when I combined running for president with things they didn't want discussed, like alien transparency, you know, time travel transparency. Mars visitation transparency. They targeted me, and I had three instances of directed energy attack. So it was really a, a combination of what I had been exposed to and then what I was exposed to as a result of talking about what I was exposed to. So my truth campaign on these subjects has not been without personal uh, harm, but we can, we can beat these problems. In addition to the hemofilter to replace artificial kidneys, we're within five years of both stem cells to repair the retina and uh, tetrahedral ocular implants that'll be placed along the side of the eyes that will do what the retinas do vis-a-vis -vis the optic nerve. So I'm trying to get everybody to realize that we are we are on the threshold of 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 a um, a revolution in advanced medical devices that we all have a stake in because they all involve systems of the body that weaken with age. Most people have some form of macular degeneration with age. It's just a natural weakening of the retina uh, and the cornea and so forth, uh, the lenses. Many people are getting, I mean, lens replacement is the most common surgery in the world now. That's what I hear. So That's all of hear. this is not being invested in. Instead, we've been focusing on um, virology in a way that's dubious because, of course, retroviruses cannot be, um, well, cannot Andrew, be do vaccinated you, against. Do you have this, do you have this on, on a website? Because, like I said, uh, anything that you have out there that you're going to be making any appearances for, you let us know. But um, in the meantime, if there's any place that people can go and, and look into new things that are... I will. I will. Thank I you. have to get the information from... Um, the makers of the hemo filter, but um, trust me when I say that it's already been built. You can hear <laughs> uh, the kidney project every last Monday of every month on YouTube talking about how advanced their work is. And it's amazing. I mean, if you've lost a relative to kidney disease, if you have a relative who's legally blind after retinal failure, just know that these things have already been achieved. We're not focusing on them. Uh, the NIH and you know the U.S. government is focused on funding the clinical trials. Uh, other things are being considered. Other like uh, other um, ethnic groups that are supposedly recipients of the government's largesse at the state and federal level are being considered, rather than American 
citizens with medical issues. But they're all of us because some of these things happen to virtually everybody as we age. You're, tell, you're telling me. get past these diseases of aging. So I'm really just going on a speaking campaign. Well, let us know where uh, that it is. Radio. Let us know where that is, uh, uh, Andrew, and and uh, I would love I to be able to syndicate some of those speaking engagements on on the network. And you let us know whenever we can we can be of uh, of assistance because we love all the time you spent with we'll us. We'll also call you and get to you where donations can be made for the kidney project. Do that, please. The kidney project is within five years. Imagine that. I'm imagining it right now. Right. <laughs> Within five years, no kidney disease. There'll be literally um, a technology to replace the human kidney. That technology exists, it's just not being tested and made. And that's what I find so disturbing about the direction America's in. We've kind of lost our way. We should remember that we are a generous people, a creative people, and we should be looking forward and saying, okay, how can we make things better? Um, that's what I think made Ken- President Kennedy so great. He was a progressive visionary. And in my better moments, that's what I've tried to be. And that's what we're going to be doing with this artificial kidney. It's within grasp. It's not just a dream. It is a reality. It now has to be made. Well, let let us help you push it. Let us help, uh, help us push you over the finish line there, uh, Andrew. And we'll talk about that definitely sometime this year. And uh, right. by, by the way, that, that other physicist I was thinking of was Ronald Mallet. I'm always forgetting Dr. Mallet's name. He's a heck of a guy, one of the nicest people I've ever met. But he, you know, there, there are a number of people, Ronald Mallet, right. Elon Musk, they want to accomplish things, and that's honorable as, you know, scientists and technicians, technologists. But the, the problem is they've already been developed. They've already been achieved by the U.S. government, but kept secret. Secret. That's one of the costs of official state secrecy, is that brilliant researchers with noble goals have been spinning their wheels trying to develop things that, have, that already exist, and they should be working on the next thing. For example, the artificial organs that can extend human life to 120, 160, 180 years. Hundred, I don't really what they I got to tell you, Andrew, I, I, I don't think I want to be alive 180 years. I, oh, I do. I want to be. I want to be around because we're we're going to be going out even more and more into the stars. I mean, well, the well, space force is to journey into space, not just protect us from threats from space. Well, and I, I think I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to all those things. 120, 180 years uh, extended seems a little bit tiresome to me. I'm going to need a rest by that point. But I I, I appreciate everything <laughs> that you do, Andrew. And uh, let's keep in touch and keep this train rolling. And thank you for everything for tonight. You got it. All right. Be well, my friend. Good to be with you again. Take care, Frank. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Andrew Bashago. Part two, 180 years I cannot do. Let's take a really quick break. When we come back, uh, it's 11.16. So in the next couple of minutes, come back, take a couple of your calls, and we just talk about things here in the in the room and uh, and mill through that. Don't go anywhere, please. This is a friendly reminder that sleeping in on a Saturday morning and eating a bagel with cream cheese is... 
How you doing, sweetheart? Listen, that ain't no bagel with cream cheese. It's more like a bagel with cream cheese skid marks, all right? Listen, don't ever disrespect yourself with that amount of cream cheese on a bagel again, all right? It looks more like a bagel with butter. It looks like you scraped the sides of the cream cheese container, but there was nothing left. But you said, I'm making a bagel with cream cheese anyway. Listen, you know what you could do with that schmear cream cheese? You can get the fuck out of here, right? A policing procedure in New York continues to draw controversy this week as thousands took to the streets to protest the NYPD's Stop and Kiss program. The policy, which allows officers to kiss anyone who they think looks suspicious, has been the subject of criticism from those who say it's a violation of privacy and a potential breach of constitutional rights. New Yorkers who've been stopped often say the encounters feel extremely intrusive. Going through my pockets, throwing my stuff on the ground, kissing me on my neck and face. They push me up against the wall and start on my ear. It's humiliating. It's something you learn to live with at this point. Every time I go out and I see a cop, I'm ready for him to come up, ask me questions, and give me a little kiss, just because, you know, the color of my skin. I mean, you don't see them kissing any pretty white ladies out here. In his last month in office, Mayor Bloomberg has continued to defend the practice, saying, quote, this program helps keep New Yorkers safe. If someone is suspected of a crime, officers should be allowed to question them and leave them with a small and reasonable kiss on the mouth. Joining us now is legal analyst Susan Hughes and Mark Brennan, a former police officer who has defended the Stop and Kiss program. Susan, does this policy go too far? It does, Rachel. Look, it's one thing to kiss someone who you think might commit a crime, but these officers are just kissing people left and right with no probable cause. If you've got nothing to hide, then it's not a problem. They just stop, ask where you're going, give you a gentle kiss or two, and let you go. I am not saying that the police shouldn't be able to detain people and kiss them, but it has to be done in a colorblind way. I mean, the fact of the matter is, nine out of ten people who are kissed under this policy in New York are black and Latino. Yeah, that's because officers are kissing people in high crime areas. These kisses aren't racially motivated. The police are just doing their job. But, Mark, there have been examples, public examples, where these procedures have just gone too far. Let's take a look at a disturbing cell phone video that's been making the rounds on the Internet. Stop! Put your hands on your head. Oh, come on, man. They just kissed me two blocks ago. Come on, man. I didn't do Shut anything. Shut the f up and let me kiss you. This is happening every day. But some argue this is just the unfortunate reality we live in. Tighter security at airports, sporting events, kiss points in Washington, D.C. Commissioner Kelly said, quote, this is what post 9-11 police work looks like. Honestly, if we could kiss everyone in New York City, we would. We just don't have the manpower. Look, the cops can either kiss people now before there's violence, or they can be kissing a bunch of dead bodies at a crime scene. All right, well, thanks, Mark and Susan. It is a complex issue. When we come back, a new health study finds that eating McDonald's at the airport doesn't count. Quite frankly, listen live or download it and take it with you wherever you go while you're driving, walking, working, or <laughs> you dirty dog. For all things, go to quitefrankly.tv. You like what you see? Become a sponsor. Quite Frankly streams live weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern wherever you get your podcasts. So for everything, it's quitefrankly.tv.
Okay. Alright, so, we got a lot more... A lot more into the details of, of certain things, the, the ghost phenomenon of... And still I'm lost. On what in particular? Like, what, what, what kept going oh, through you? Okay. Here, here's something. Is the Mars that's up in the sky that we see, is that the same place he's talking about going to? It, it, that's a great question. And I, I got I to gotta write that one down because there's so many different things that were popping up. Because it, it, then you're, if it's not... I mean, it's either you're getting into a jump in, in, into something that is going to fold time and space to teleport you to Mars, or you just went someplace and you're calling it Mars. Right. You're, you're going to like the upside down and Stranger Things, and you're calling it Mars. Yeah, that's what I, that kind of what I'm thinking because he seemed to be saying they're two separate things. I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Anthony, what did you do? Was there anything in particular? That was interesting. That was that you wanted to hear more about anything that that. that well, that ghosts are uh, stuck. Well, they're one of three things that they're either stuck here, they're fragments of something that's not here anymore, or what was the other thing that they're interdimensional beings? Yeah, they're like and, a demigorgon or something like that. And the whole idea that you know. Um, they're not haunting. They're they're scared and they unravel. It's like fuck. That sounds like torture. Yeah, but it, it, but that's the whole. Th that's what I'm saying there. Um, and the soul. I like that. I like I like that they say that to kids. I think he's got entirely too much trust in the government. Listen, last time he was on, you remember, he was talking about. He was talking about um, government time travel uh, operations that seem to be very, very too benevolent based right. on what we know them to be. And uh, and I, I know that if you go f farther back, there's probably going to be better better crops of people working inside a government that you might be able to... Tr I, I just but know. even back then, what we know of the CIA, what we know of uh, all of the, uh, everything we've heard, it's just all, they're all up to nefarious stuff. And if they get a hold of something like time travel, they're going to use it to benefit themselves and their cause, which is not the same as ours. Right. So. I, I, I'm with you on that. There's a there's a bunch of things that I heard along the way, but with, with an hour, and in, and uh, and uh, Mr. Bashago loves loves to just you know give you everything he's got. So I, I feel just, bad for him. I've, I'm what he's going through. He's got to. Oh, be. it's no, it's terrible. It's I mean, hey, we just would skip. That was Skip's story. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the, and to be blind on top of that. The the, uh, the the dialysis is a horrible. The kidney failure is a horrible, horrible thing. He's and blind. He's he's legally blind. So. Andrew is uh, legally blind, and he's in. Kid I did not know about the kidney failure. Right, that's uh, until I was talking to him, you know, uh, off air to, to set up all the details for tonight, and um, and he had just been he just finished with dialysis. I had not known. Wow. And obviously, that's something we all know well for sure. Um, but 120 years, yeah. 180 years, mm -hmm. I would be okay with a nice functional 110. I feel like crap at 50. See, that's what I'm saying. Functional, <laughs> vivacious, spring, spring to our steps. If you can, if you can just totally, I don't know. But I couldn't imagine being in a 120-year-old body. 
it's just uh, it seems like it would hurt a little bit. I don't know. So what else is there? Let's go into this, the super chat to see what's coming. Uh, Stostube says, just enjoying a great listen and dropping some support for an extra Saturday show. Thank you, Stostube. It's great to have you out there. Um, uh, Nancy Ives says, can't thank you enough for the recap with Matt today. Um, it's going to be my favorite for whenever, for whenever I'm sad. Well, the recap of what? The recap with what? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm missing out on that one. That was from yesterday? No, that was an hour ago. Can't thank you enough for the recap with Matt today. I had to be yesterday. Yesterday? Okay. Recap recap of what, though? Uh, In particular, Nancy. Thank you for being out there, obviously. Um, Let's see. Here's another one. Over on... Damn it. No, not there. And what happened to the foxhole chat? It's not... It's not there anymore. Somebody said there was like a couple thousand people in Rumble. Really? Yeah. I read it on the Well, who knows what YouTube happened? YouTube chat. I don't think so. Can't be. I don't know. Can't be. Maybe a little bit. Uh, there's just, there's oddities here. I can't find the, the, the chat for the foxhole. But I wanted to know a little bit of what's going on with people on that on that front. Now there was the Atlantis. I was just throwing that out there. A lot of people want to know about Atlantis, whether they had seen he had seen giants walking the earth, whether or not pyramids, if they saw the actual putting mm-hmm. together of the pyramids. And what did what did he say to that? No. No. Okay. No. No. It, well, a couple of things that 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 make me. Uh, scratch my head is didn't send be sent to a couple of different locations and times because of the danger for children and then again I'm saying whether they're herbivores or not yeah they could you're, rip them apart yeah you send them to, I, I woun't send a, a five-year-old to walk around with brontosaurus <laughs> you know they don't need to chew them it's, <laughs> it's stomped on it's stomped on so yeah. I'm I th- yeah I'm glad we're on the same page with that one yeah, yeah. um it, the only other thing that did not get around to and it sounds like what he's talking about with being able to be opportunistic with that kind of technology it sounds like he was referring to a little bit of the side betting that was going on with events like 9/11. Yes. Um, yeah. The side bets and 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 the the billionaires that were made or had their pockets lined even more from things like that. We still have not spoken about Antarctica though. Yeah, he did. He also introduced the term chronogarchy, which I looked up a little bit, and I'm I'm interested in uh, in seeing that. I guess some people have written about what that is and it sounds like you know maybe people that have taken advantage of it or somebody's i'm not exactly sure but well, it makes me want to look into it so the, is it the book and he speaking like it was a book yeah somebody wrote a book about it but i just wasn't even familiar with the term did you put it in your amazon cart no i just wrote the word down okay so so i can research it later well, I um, I'm I'm glad that we got around to talking about pri- the idea, or at least asking about privatized time travel and whether or not it's the, like this wild west situation out there. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to all of the Ford's theater visits and little tiny details changing along the way, that sounds a lot like Mandela effect, which makes me wonder what is being done what kind of experiments are being done on large scales that's changing things for everybody not just how somebody remembers something happening in one theater you know a little uh, you know, the whole uh, however however much stock you put into the mandela effect 
And he's going back in time, back in the 70s, when they're first, they're, they're first making this technology. And if it's come so far, you, if you can imagine how far they've come. And the past is still the past, so it's got to be a mess if people... If more than one person is going back in time, because one person could have an effect on time, I mean, it's really, it just kind of, it kind of makes me crazy. I can't. It does. And, and that's why when it comes to time space, if any of this is true, there's no way in hell time can just be linear. It, right. There's no way that time can just be the back to the future way of thinking of things where you just you're in 1985 you go back to 1955 and there's only one we're all on one track in disneyland and there's only one place where it can go so you're working on that track so cutting and pasting is going to screw everything up yeah. uh, but the whole concept somebody has got to find a way to put it into layman's terms about the concept of multiverse and dimensions and there being variations in different places how it happens what the hell i w would love for somebody to put it into layman's terms i because i've tried to wrap my head around it so many times <laughs> uh, you have to you end up giving up it's just uh it yeah. hurts a little too much to think like that i just hope that somewhere along the way i i i get it not but i don't know if that's that's going to be but I like thinking about the soul going on. Not sure I like so much about re reincarnation that I'd want to come back, especially on this timeline, knowing that you've got to come back later on in this game that's going on right now. No, yeah. I, I hate the idea of reincarnation more and more that I think about it. Yeah. I, I just personally, I hate it. I don't even, you know, as far as... As, as far long, I guess as long as you're getting stuck with the same people you love now, that wouldn't be so bad. No. If I had to go around with them. That wouldn't be bad. Right. I mean, maybe you can make some alterations along the way. We can do without this person for just one lifetime. <laughs> we could do without this person one lifetime, give them a little bit of a timeout, you know, <laughs> send them to like, uh, to, I don't know, to Elba for a, a, a while. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's see stuff. if there's anybody else out there. 914-595-6953. You can jump on in. Let me know if there's anything in particular. That smacked you in the face this time around. I'd love to know that because we went all over the place. Yeah. We certainly did. Um, 394 sent a can. Homegoy says, can you see this? Now I can see it. Everything was gone, though, on the, the pilled side of things. But you know what? I think that's may maybe all we, we might need. Um, it's a Saturday night. People are going to listen to this on Sunday uh, and then on Monday morning, and I'll get emails about it, and it'll enrich the, the show this week. Sherry, I'm glad that you were here for this. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I got to come back and hear part two. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad Anthony got to hear a little bit of this too. Oh, you know what? I wanted to say something. I'm doing a podcast with Casey. We just we're starting one. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's gonna we we recorded our first episode, and I'm on the technology, and we're trying to get the sound right and stuff. But uh, but it's coming soon. So it'll be a little uh, offshoot of the the quite frankly universe. So what is it gonna be, what's it gonna be? Um, well, I don't really know her. We just kind of met at the function a couple years ago. So we're gonna we're doing this. T 36 questions to fall in love just to we're just going to answer the questions back and forth and oh okay have a good time just some you know girl talk but not too girly 
Sounds like something for uh, for for Valentine's Day. I think that, quite frankly, ladies might want to listen to something other than you know. Quite vaguely. Quite vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, terrible. The, don't uh, don't name my podcast. No, no, please. I'm not gonna. You name you name your podcast or whatever you want. I can't I can't so wait awful. to hear it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be nice. It's gonna be fun. I can't wait to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that gonna be coming out? We already have one, and I'm we're calling it the Curiosity Shop just because of my the store and you know whatever. I we might even rename it. It's so early on, we can do anything we want. So it's um Curiosity it's on Shop YouTube sounds right now, Curiosity Shop sounds actually pretty cozy to be honest well i'll send you a link and then maybe you could uh tell people once we get a couple of episodes up no Come doubt on. we got to get in the groove first no doubt no doubt about it yeah you know what? I'll, let me take one call uh 219 you're on the air what's going on quite frankly could you hear you hey wait is this frank yeah no, who's this um hey thanks for doing your show i didn't get to catch the catch it live but thanks for doing your show thank you this is Kimago hi cousin hi how are ya who's this I'm good I'm good okay well it was uh it was a family day hung out with the mom and the sister taking down the Christmas tree taking down the Christmas tree on the that's late on the yeah you guys were enjoying that for a while huh you know what? I think my dad was very. My mom, she said, my parents are like almost eighty, Boy. and my mom, she goes, "Oh, dad was so happy that you guys were coming over to take down the Christmas tree." And I was thinking, dad's probably really happy that it's down before March. Oh yeah, and, 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 and that's the way that it is over here. I, I love at this point, and, and thanks for the call. I'm glad that you're enjoying yourself. I want to get one more in. Um, uh, uh, that's the way it is over here at this time. This is really crunch time. There's always a couple more lights, houses with lights on it. Yeah. One of them near us is actually still lighting them all up every night. Well, Big yeah, I got extra- a couple in my neighborhood too. Good for them for at least lighting it, because yeah. the the ones who are just obviously just being lazy, they're not putting it on, but they're not taking off of the off the bushes. That's the worst. There is one house that did such a horrible job taking off of their taking off their their Halloween cobwebs. Mm-hmm. You know, people just don't know how to apply cobwebs. Yeah, it's, there's an art to that. Oh, it's horrible. Mm. They just put clumps of this fucking cotton all over <laughs> these these bushes, and looks uh, like gypsy moth nests. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's there until next spring because you can't get it off. Yeah. Oh, uh, whatever. Let's just do one more call. <laughs> Two five three. You're on the air. Who's this? Oh my goodness! I'm contact. Uh, Jeff. First time caller, and I finally got in with you. So this is an interesting episode, especially with the uh, the chrononaut. Yes. So, uh, sorry, I'm driving a, a truck, commercial vehicle right now. Um, Don't crash. Don't. Yeah, be very careful. <laughs> Watch out for that car. So yeah, I you know I I like to think about how he was explaining the technology, and I think that uh, describing it as a hologram is kind of succinct. So he's spending time in space with programs, spending time in space, and essentially they're going to other places. And with this, he kind of explains uh, other entities, interdimensional entities, 
other life forms. And if I could put it in some type of system, um, especially the his scientific modern etymology, I would say it's more closer to IT. So it's almost as if we're all in a shared client session. However, they found technology to essentially jump servers to go through different times, different places, potentially different universes. And uh, with that, I think it's, it's very interesting. Very interesting. I would, you know, I would love, and thanks for the call because I, I, I that's a, that's a, a nice way of articulating it. I think it's, it's a little bit clearer. Uh, I like those little analogies that can, that can paint the picture a little bit better. What I really would love to know is, again, the way that this is all calibrated. And thanks for the call again. I hope he calls in again. Um, but how it's all calibrated, you know. We think of Back to the Future again. You get into the DeLorean and you type in a date. Yeah. Obviously, there he you know, Doc Brown says you want to see the, the, the birth of Christ, December twenty fifth, year zero, whatever. Yeah. Just as a whatever. What do you, what what is it? You know, how is it that somebody that a couple of people out there who was studying uh, Gregorian chants are suddenly open? I, how do you fine-tune something that because the first thing I think about is when he hears my little zucchini come through I'm thinking EVP you know I mean there's all types of weird shit that comes in through EVPs hmm. and, you know and that could you can say that's re- resonant or you can you, you know some people have those those uh, ghost hunters they have those devices that almost scan through all types of radio frequencies and supposedly by taking a lyric of a song over here, a piece of a commercial over here, a entity is giving you a message. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's a little bit more, I can understand, I can understand the application of that kind of a, of a piece of technology. As far as calibrating, a chronovisor. I wish I. I wish he had a little bit more insight into that. But they they also say that the human voice is the only thing, the only type of energy that's actually created, because you can't create energy. You can only, um, you know, it can only take a different form. And but when you speak words, you're creating an energy and you're putting it out there, and then, and then it still exists. I've yeah, so you know, I've heard that too. Maybe that's it coming back around. Be, uh, I don't know. I wish I knew Something who it was. It. I wish I knew who it was that um, that uh, that that working off of that theory that said that we pretty much need need just need to conceptualize some sort of a technology that can capture all of the resonance around us from past events mm-hmm. that we are just living in a space where wherever somebody had spoken anything it is it's just like on a on a cosmic vinyl record all around us and all we need to do is just find the the diamond pin needle for it all and uh and and, and listen so I, I don't know how that works i'd love to get I would love to get deeper into this. Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in that. Dig, dig, help me dig this up. Yeah. Who the hell that was I'm talking about? Was it Edison? Uh, was it Edison himself? Maybe it was like Carl Sagan or something. We would need to talk to a parapsychologist. Okay. You I'd have to one? find myself. <laughs> I, have to, I would have to find a parapsychologist 
to help us start piecing that together. Yeah. I think that'd be a that'd be an interesting thing to start with. One last call. Six seven eight, you're on the air. Yeah, hey. Right. Hello, yes. Take you take us off a speakerphone, please. Okay. There you go. That doesn't sound any better, but go right ahead. He's lying. Yeah. Hey, Frank. Yes. You doing good? I'm doing well. What's oh, okay. on? Okay. Yeah. All right. I just wanted to, I just got one question. If maybe you'd ask some of your time traveler friends or Timothy Alberino, <laughs> is what, what, what they think Elijah caught a ride on out of here. The Bible says carry the fire, but I just don't see forces of fire running. Wait, 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 wait. What, what, what's? Can you a- ask the question one more time? What they think Elijah caught a ride on out of that time period? Oh, I, I don't. It's in the Bible. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't. No, I, I'm I don't, asking you. Ask Timothy Alberino or some of your time traveling guests. Well, if what what, they might think. here's what you can do, because especially we, I don't have any of them on the line right now. If you can email the show. I think that Timothy Timothy Alberino would be uh, would actually be the better person to to ask someone like him would to ask about that kind of imagery and those types of things that that you're you're referring to in the Bible, which I I don't I don't really have any recollection of. So e- email the show that, and next time that Timothy's on there and we're doing bonus questions, I'll throw that his way. Hi. All right. Well, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Okay. Hi. Oh, this is one guy I, I can't say no to, and then we're done for the night. It's Jerry Coogan from from Scotland. What's going on, Jerry? Oh. Wow. We're going to switch that off, as we do. Hi, Jerry. Professionals here, so. Hi there, Sherry. How nice to speak to you. I've seen you many a time, but I've never spoken to you. It's nice to speak to you. Okay, Jerry, we're ending the yeah. night with you, so give us some nice thoughts to, to close it all out. It's, <laughs> it's so entertaining. You, like myself, uh, you, you've always enjoyed reading science fiction and I, I'm sorry Andrew but I just I, I listen to all this and I just think this is wonderful science fiction and the question that I would love to have asked them is have you ever submitted a, a manuscript to a publisher you know some sort of science fiction Wheeze, a Dune or a Foundation series or something like that, and had rejection after rejection, and you've gone off in another angle. Because, I mean, it's, it's entertaining, it's wonderful. I'm not sure how much he believes it and how much it's just... Uh, okay, Jerry, uh, hold, hold on, Jerry. You, you, you're, but, uh, you're breaking up, but from what I heard, what I think I heard there is that uh, you pretty much you're saying is as entertaining and as in, as enthralling a a journey that story is you you can't bring yourself to really believe that this is all rooted in in fact this has all happened no i can't believe it for one thing let's let's say that i'm sitting here in scotland and i chrono vision myself to new york to come into your studio uh how many millions of times would you have to try that experiment before you actually arrived on the ground as opposed to 100 feet up in the air where you're 40 or death, or 100 feet below the soil where it's all over. It just, none of it makes sense. 
I can understand. I mean, it's great. As I say, as a science fiction wheeze, what a great theme for a... But you read science fiction and you suspend belief. You think, well, yeah, oh, maybe. But to imagine people sort of just blundering through all this. Oh, I wonder if we could... This technician that's picked up a screwdriver and ends up in Africa. Well, what a stroke of luck that he just managed to find his way all the way back to America. I mean, anyway, Africa? Have you seen the size of Africa? I mean, he could have arrived in Africa on the horn of a rhinoceros or... I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. I mean, but it's fantastically entertaining. I would read it. I mean, I read hundreds of science fiction books when I was a teenager and maybe a little bit longer. And I still enjoy a right good science fiction wheeze. And it makes me think of L. Ron Hubbard, who spent years trying to be a successful science fiction uh, author and then gave up on that and thought, I've got a better idea. I'm going to make a religion. I, I'll, I'll do something else. Uh, you know, I can't compete with Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke or whoever it was at the time. But uh, oh, I've got oh, I've got an idea here. And whether it's like run for president or or some other publicity thing, but it's so entertaining. It's almost harmless. But that, that and that's me being kind. And it's unchanging. <clears throat> he doesn't change the story, so that's that's good. That's a good quality for a manuscript as well. Yeah, there's a lot ah, there. That's... Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no. We're 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 just concurring that there's a lot there. Uh, it, it, he's never. He's very. Uh, he's unchanging in all the ways that he delivers it. And it has been. I mean, I've heard several of his interviews prior to having him on the show back in September for the first time, and it's always very consistent. So, I, and then you know, we live in a time of great revelation, and uh, I, I think that we all we all have some suspicion as to what the ulterior motives or the uh, the the multiple uses that are not published uh, for the, for the public um, for places like CERN. Or anything else. I mean, we're 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 now surrounded by a net of weird satellites, and we're just being doused in, uh, with so many different types mm-hmm. of chemicals and and environmental toxins, and and who knows? Uh, maybe all and and the 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 electromagnetics. Uh, who the hell knows? You know um, what has already been established, and well, <laughs> he certainly well, he's, yeah he, yeah. He, 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 Exactly right. I mean, we are so far behind what... Can you imagine the brainiest person in the world? I mean, you've got high IQ, I've got high IQ, Sherry's almost certainly got high IQ. We're pretty clever. You know, 99% of the population... I'm not boasting about this, but I just know it's a fact. But then you get to that exponential increase where you're going from 150 IQ to 200. And you think, my God... God, how clever are these people? And then you think, give them a few billion dollars to research things that interest them and think how far they go. I always think of this this thing when we go back to the Second World War and you've got Spitfires and P-51Ds and all. So many people were driving along in, in what was that Ford car called? The Tin Lizzie or something like that. And there was still, I don't know, a huge percentage of the population of the world that used a horse and cart to do their hard work and you've got these things whizzing along at 350 miles an hour in the sky
guy. We are so far behind what the really brainy people know. So, I mean, I can believe that all sorts of things are possible. I can believe that they could do this, I could do that. But I'm afraid, I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't believe that uh, our man there tipped off George Washington. Uh, oh, go over there, <laughs> left a bit, left a bit, left a bit, that's better. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, the, the George Washington. Uh, so- and, and being at the Gettysburg Address, there's a lot of. The- oh, yeah. There's a lot and, of there. And also the assassination, you know. Oh, I went there eight yeah. times. Oh, I just missed it every bloody time, eight times, you know. There's but just I can a lot land exactly here when there's dinosaurs or whatever. Oh, come on. But entertaining. I mean, it's so entertaining. I've listened to both interviews and they are entertaining. So long as you've got a few drums inside you and you think to yourself. I was gonna say <laughs> I was gonna say, hey, I, I, I could have I could have used one beforehand. But uh, I didn't want to fall. I didn't want to, my my eyes to just you know to see. I, I'm already so tired. I would have loved to just you know had a had a drink and enjoyed this even more, because you're the, tired. It's five o'clock in the morning here. I know. I know. That's why I, I give you all wow. the I give you all the, all the uh, the credit in the world when you hang out with us on a Saturday night. Jeez. Yeah, but at least it's at least I, it's Sunday. You get to relax today. I probably will sleep right through the day because I've had a few gigs over over the last few days and, and my cycle is all over the place but I really want to watch oh, Jokovic, right, the Australian Open, the tennis, I really want to see that, I want to see how he gets on because I'm desperate for him to win it because he was the one professional athlete that said, I am not going to take the vaccine huh. and they banned him last year, he was the defending champion of the Australian Open which is the Grand Slam there are the same as golf. There are four Grand Slams in tennis. Uh, he was the defending champion of of the Australian Open. He's won it nine times. They wouldn't let him play last year. They actually deported him. Wow. And I, re- the I remember that. Would let him. Yeah, the French wouldn't let him play in their Open. Fortunately, he was allowed to play in Britain and he won Wimbledon. And then he wasn't allowed to play in the U.S. Open. And now he's. I don't know how it happened, but. He's been allowed to go back to Australia, so he's in the final. I know, I know, so I know that uh, our mother is is very excited about this. She loves that stuff. She loves tennis. So I've, we'll we'll be on the lookout. I think it's going to be a, like three o'clock in the morning our time, though. So it's it's uh, it, it should have kicked off by now. It's four. It's ten to five now. I, I was expecting it to kick off at uh, four o'clock in the morning. So maybe I've got that wrong. But uh, well, that's what that's what my mother said. Maybe I'm remembering it but wrong, gave, or she got it wrong. Me, that gave me the extra. That gave me the extra incentive to thought I'm going to catch a Saturday stream just this one time. And I was half asleep at two o'clock in the morning here, Wait, waiting for three o'clock. I was half asleep. I thought, right, I'll go out for a, a walk around. I'll just walk up and down the street, have a wee smoke, and see if that shakes me together. And it's cold here, so yes, that certainly woke me up. But hey, man, I love you. I think it's just such a great platform. This. I just wish to God you would go on about three or four hours earlier so I could get into some kind of, <laughs> some kind of you, you know, know regular. You, you never know. Rhythm. You never know, Jerry, because there's a lot of a lot of changes coming. Thanks for the call. There's a lot of changes coming over here, um, and I, I'm going to have a lot more convenient and very beautiful home set up soon. So that if there's anything extra that I ever wanted to do, if I ever wanted to do some uh, extra broadcasts along the way during the week for European time zones to expand uh, to expand all of those audiences 
I, I'm going to be a lot more set up for that soon, and and you'll you'll see all about it in the coming months. But it's going to take months, and but I, I would love to cater to people like you a little bit more. I hate that. Uh, well, you're already up one o'clock in the morning anytime we're live, anyhow. But gotta go easy on old Jerry's. <laughs> I'll be here one way or another. But uh, one one more thing: all the people that are listening, make sure you hit the like button on whatever platform like it is you're watching do that every night whether you're watching on youtube jump over to rumble hit the like button do the things that uh, promote this channel and uh, there's no like button on theta tv but we could use a few more people over there if anybody wants to just pop in nice. and join the crowds but uh, hit, hit that like button throw in a comment even if it's just great show frank or thanks frank it all boosts the algorithm. So go to what's it called? Uh, Something. Rumble. Go to, yeah, Rumble, YouTube, Odyssey, any of the ones that have got a like function. Take a few seconds every night just to say, oh, yep, 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 yep. And do the rounds, hit the like button, throw in the comments. I appreciate you. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. you, Jerry. Yeah. Have a good night and, and uh, get, get some sleep. Thanks for, for toughing it out with us. We'll talk to you soon. Love you. Next time, all the best. Cheers. Nice. Bye-bye. Yo. Cheers. Well, that's it. That's it. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Thanks, Ann, for uh, taking the ride. And, uh, oh, shit. Thanks, Ann, for taking yeah, the ride. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Have a good, good sleep, everybody. We'll see you all on Monday night, 7 o'clock. We do it all over again. It's going to be a great week. Good guests, good topics of conversation. Um, for now, go get some sleep. Good night. I'll catch you on the flip side.